Good morning, my dear friends. I'm trying to gauge um, if people got an email yesterday with the information about this class from Project Lakotasichas. Yes, we got the email, wonderful. And with the link to the Sikhan, it also, terrific. Okay, so now we just have to make sure everybody is on. Maybe Canada. Uh, I did not get it. I did not get it. It, it, even though I'm signed in with them, I did yeah, not get it. Because we're in Canada, Chayasara. Therefore what? Therefore, <laughs> hello. It doesn't cross the border. It's not open till November 8th. <laughs> I didn't think of it. Good idea. Good point. <laughs> it, and it didn't have the, the password. I put my name in, but it said ask for the password. So I just linked it through WhatsApp. So the only people who would have been on that list are either the people who had specifically um, contacted me and asked to be on the list or people who had contacted the project and asked to get an email reminder. And now they're doing it through the office. So I just want to make sure, Joni, could it be that you like have spam blocked or something? Like in other words, that you that they couldn't it go through? It wasn't, in, it wasn't in my junk. So I don't know. Go try again next week. It'll work. I'll try again next week. Okay. It is 9.59. We will start in a minute. Um, but anybody who's on and wants to um, get a reminder can write to projectlakotesichas.com, I think. Um, go on their website, get their email, and they will send you a reminder each week, starting next week. I think it's .org, no? .org, sounds good. Do check. I'm not it's 10 a.m. Um, and we're going to begin. Um, it's Parshas Vayera, Chelek Tezvav, and uh, we're doing Sicha Aleph. And this is the classic Rashi Sicha. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I hope, I hope that you will enjoy the, the puzzle and all the pieces. And um, if you feel like we should be reviewing more or I should you know, um, to go over something again, please uh, just unmute yourself and say so. Um, so the pastor we're looking at, and if you have a Chumash and Rashi, I think it will be helpful, is a Perakut Ches, Pasuk Tes. So the Rebbe says, Allah Pasuk, regarding the Pasuk, Vayimru Elav, and they said to him, these are the Malachim, the angels, and the hymn is Avraham. Aye Sarah Ishtacha. Where is Sarah your wife? Mefarish Rashi. Rashi tells us. Vayimru a love, the words, and they said to him, specifically the word a love, not, not Vayimru, the word a love, Nakud al Aleph Yud Vav Shebe love. There is a dot on top of the Aleph and the Yud and the Vav of the word a love. Vitanya, and it was taught. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said, or says rather, Kol makayim shahaksav rabba al hanakuda atadayish haksav. 
whenever the undotted letters are more than the dotted letters, so if you have a word and let's say two letters are dotted, but five letters don't have a dot on top, you must explain the undotted letters. There is a subtext here. There's an additional message on the pshat, and the Torah is, is bringing your attention to this by telling you to focus on the letters that are undotted for the message. But here, the Khan, Rashi says, Hanakuda Rabalaksav. And therefore, Atadayish Hanakuda. But here, in the word a love, which is comprised of four letters, three out of the four letters have this dot on them. And so the data letters are more than the undotted letters. And therefore, at the Darish Hanakuda, you must explain the dotted letters, the, the letters that have a dot on them. And what do we learn from this? Sha'af lusara sha'alu ayoy Avraham. If you take the, un, the, the dotted letters, Aleph Yud Vav, it spells out a word. They asked Sarah Ayoy, where? Where is Avraham? Lamadnu, we learn from this extra lesson that is embedded in the dots. We learn from this that a person should always inquire of his or her host. You should ask the man about his wife, how is your wife doing? And you should ask the woman about her husband. And then Rashi continues, and we will look at what Rashi says in just a few minutes. But first, the Rebbe has questions on this part of it. The The Rebbe says the following things are not understood. Aleph, it would seem, perish Rashi who rak al tevas a love. Rashi focuses, it seems, with laser precision on the word a love. That it's nakur al alef yud vav love. That three out of the four letters in the word a love, which means to him, are dotted. And Rashi teaches us that we should pay attention to those letters that are dotted. They spell out the word ayoy where is, and that they asked Avraham where is Sarah. If this is what Rashi's focus is, Rashi afes tevas so why does Rashi put in the deeper Maschil not only the word a love, but the word vayimru a love, and they said to him. And of course, we must be ever attentive to the fact that the Rebbe taught us that the deeper Maschil, what seems to be just the caption, is actually part of Rashi's perush. And so why does there seem to be an extra word? In this case, the extra word is vayimru, base. This is another one of the Rebbe's rules in learning Rashi. The Rashi will only cite the name of the person who first taught this. And the same is true of the source that Rashi takes it from. He will only cite these when it adds to understanding what it is we're trying to understand. The 
Amar Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar. And so exactly what do we learn from the inclusion of Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar's name, which seems to indicate that we have to know who said this in order to understand this rule. And the rule is that when there's more letters that are dotted, you focus on the ones that are dotted. When less are dotted, you focus on, when, 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 when more are undotted, you would focus on the ones that are undotted. You always go by the, by the majority. So what is the link between that rule? And knowing that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said that, taught us that rule, Gimel. But if you look at the rule, the, the corollary, the axiom that Rabbi, ben, that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar taught, <laughs> it needs explanation. Why would you have to put extra dots on more letters? And then in conformity with this rule, you would have to be mefarish, the preponderance of letters, the majority of letters that have a dot. But if, according to this rule, every place where there are letters that are undotted, if the majority of letters are undotted, then you would focus on the undotted letters. So in, in conformity with this rule, So would have been enough to just put a dot in our... In our um, Okay, so it would have been enough to put a dot on the Lamid. And then we would also be focusing on the Aleph, the Yud, and the Vav, because again, the majority of letters would not be dotted. The Gam Oz, Hayinu Darshim, Es Rav So in other words, if you always go by the majority, there are two ways you could do it. You could either put dots on the majority of letters, or you could leave the majority of letters undotted you would still have the same result. According to this rule, you'd still be focusing on the same letters. In our word, Aleph Yudvav. So Rebbe asks, of what import is it? Of what, what is the efficacy of putting extra dots when you could have arrived at the same place, not put dots on three letters? Like in our case, in our case, all you have to do is put one dot on the lamid, and you would still have to be mefarish aleph yud vav. So there must be an important reason that these three letters need to have a dot on them. Dalit. In addition to these three above mentioned questions on this Rashi, there seems to be a contradiction with a Rashi that will be mentioned forthwith in the next parak. On the words, and he did not know when she lay down, when she got up. Perish Rashi, Uvakuma Nokud. There are dots on the word Uvakuma, which means when she got up, Loimar Shebekuma Yada, to teach us that in getting up he did know. According to this, Hare Shahanikud Bala Akar Esateba. 
So here it seems in this second Rashi coming up in Yotes Lamed Gimel, it seems that Rashi is coming to tell us that when you have dots on a word or on a letter, it comes to the word la'akor here that's being used means to uproot. Um, but I would say that what the content of this means that it would seem that Rashi is telling us that when you put dots on letters or in words, it comes to obviate, to, 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 to kind of discount that. So in the case of Light and his daughters, it seems like Rashi is teaching us that dots on a word knocks out the word. It, it lessens the word. It completely takes it away. Here it seems that Rashi is telling us that when you have dots on letters or on a word, you should pay more attention. It seems like you're expounding on it. You're making it more important, not less important. So how does this Rashi jibe with what Rashi is going to tell us in the next parak? So before we go back into, back into Bayes, let's quickly review the questions that we have. Number one, why do we have the word Vayayimu in the deeper Hamaskil? Why is that important? We know that it's significant. What is the significance of putting that seemingly extraneous word in the deeper Hamaskil? Second, why does Rashi in this case, and he does so infrequently, cite the Baal Hamaymar? The Baal Hamaymar is the person who first taught this teaching. The third question seems to be kind of mechanical. In other words, according to the rule that Rashi is teaching us here, you'll always go by the majority. If the majority of letters are dotted, you will focus on the dotted ones. If the majority of letters are not dotted, then in a word, then you'll focus on those. So in this case, why dafka dot aleph yud vav, if we still would have had to focus on the letters aleph yud vav, simply by putting a dot on the lamet. So why put three dots instead of one? And finally, how does this Rashi align with what Rashi tells us later concerning the story of the two daughters of Lloyd? And, um, you know, we remember that uh, they, they worried that this was the end of the world and therefore that they had to continue the human species. And, um, it's, and, 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 and the Torah tells us that Lot was unaware. And on the word, when, they, when he got up, there's dots on this. And Rashi tells us that he did know. He was unaware uh, when he lay down, but was aware when he got up. And so it would seem that the dots there are obviating, they're uprooting the word. But here Rashi is teaching us the dots just makes it more important. It just begs us to expound and to extrapolate and to ask what kind of additional teaching is there from the letters. And so which one is it? Do letters, do, do the dots, sorry, do the dots strengthen the word? Do the dots ameliorate, take away the word? What, what is going on here? Base. Now the Rebbe is going to go further in this Rashi. Remember, we only did half of the Rashi of this same Debra Maskil. He's going to go to the next part. The Hemshech Divri Rashi, Ba'isen Debra Maskil. As we continue in this Rashi, again, under the same Dibor Hamasil, under the same caption, Rashi continues to say, 
Ein Bava Metzia, Oimrim, they say, Yoidim Hoyu Malachi Hashari Sara Imenu Hechan Haisa. The ministering angel surely knew where Sara was. So why did they ask Ayoi Sara? Why did they ask? I'm sorry, Ayei Sara. Why did they ask where is Sara? This is in order to tell us that she was a modest woman. And to further endear her to her husband, to underscore her modesty. Rabbi Yesi Barchanina taught, They asked where she was in order to send her the wine of blessing. And the Rebbe now fires a series of questions on this second part of Rashi. Seven questions with the seventh having like a subsidiary aspect. Aleph. Okay. It would seem that the second part of Rashi is not an explanation as to why there are dots on the letters Aleph Yud Vav in the word a love. They asked him, meaning Avraham, Ella, Al, Ayid, Aye, Sarah, Ishtacha. It would seem that this part of Rashi should have had its own deeper hamatriel, its own caption, and the word should have been, Where is Sarah? Your wife, Aye Sarah Ishtacha. And it shouldn't have been un, under the words Vayyamru a love they said to him. Bimkain, Hayal Rashi Lichtab Zoy's Bedibar Maskab of Neasme, Veloy Behem Shaklipirushin Nakud al Aleph Yudvat. This is deserving of its own Dibar Hamaskil. Why does it come under the same Dibar Hamaskil in one continuum? Subsidiary question Hakushyav Gdailam Izu. The question is even bigger. It would seem not only is this part of Rashi deserving its own deeper maschil, but it seems that there's a part of the second part of the Rashi that clashes with something that Rashi said earlier. Because here Rashi is saying that in Baba Metziah they said that Sarah was a modest woman. It would seem that underscoring her modesty is not aligned with what it says earlier that they asked her about Avraham. It would seem that them engaging in conversation with her is contrary to Sneas. So the, the main question here is, why does Rashi not give us the second part of his parish under its own Debra Moscow. A subsidiary question is, it would seem that in the second part of Rashi, there's an aspect that kind of is contrary to what he said earlier. So why would Rashi do that again in one fell swoop? Basically talk out of two sides of his mouth. Underscore her modesty and earlier talk about how the angels were talking with her, which would seem to be contraindicated to that level of modesty. Okay, So here's a different iteration of the same 
question we had above. Above the question was, why are we citing a certain person? And here it's, why are we citing a certain source? In both cases, the Rebbe teaches us that understanding why Rashi cites exactly a person when he does, or the source when he does, is seminal to understanding Rashi's parish in general, in this case. And Gimel, again, Rashi cites another person. And why does he cite Rabbi Yossi Barchanina's name as the person who said that what the angels wanted to do was send her Kishel Bracha? Dalit, fourth question. And once we're talking about the Kishel Bracha, the Rebbe says, and yeah, why were the Malachim sending her Kishel Bracha from their cup? Why didn't her husband give her Kishel Bracha? Strange. And this, again, seems to be contraindicated to modesty, which was just underscored. Hey, bidvarav kan hevi rashi gimel tamim al shelas hamalachim ayesarah. If you look at Rashi in the aggregate, both parts, Rashi presents us with three reasons for why they said, where is Sarah, your wife? Aleph. First is to teach us manners. You should always ask your host about their spouse. Second, the second reason they asked him, where is Sarah? Is to kind of underscore Hertzniah's by asking, even though they already knew. And in this way, to further endear her to her husband which is always a nice thing to say things to someone about their spouse and further endear them to each other. And the third reason the Rashi offers here is pragmatic reason. They want to send her so they need to know where she is. And here where we're coming again to another rule that the Rebbe taught us in learning Rashi, and that is that when Rashi gives us more than one reason to the same question, there's a reason why he does that. And so we need to understand in this case, why does Rashi need to present us with three reasons? Rashi is very parsimonious with his words, uh, very calculated, and it's not just, you know, because this is fun for the third grade teacher to be able to give the students three reasons. No, there has to be a reason why he offers three reasons. He feels compelled to offer three reasons. Vav, sixth question. And more than this, Rashi already told us earlier in this very story, in our Parsha, in the second puzzle, um, in our Perak, in this very chapter, in the second verse in this chapter, Rashi told us that one of the reasons for the angels coming was to tell Sarah the news that she was going to become a mother. And so if we've been learning this story, then it stands to reason that they were asking where she was so that they could tell her this good news, this exciting news. 
הוצרך רש"י מעיקר לחפש ולהביא טעמים אחרים על שלוסם, איי שרי אשתך. And so if we have already been told that one of the reasons the angels came was to give Sarah this news, why does Rashi have to comment on at all when they say, where is Sarah, your wife? We already know why they're looking for Sarah. They have something to tell her. Why does Rashi feel compelled to give us any reason at all to, to, to even comment when we wouldn't have a question? The reader of this narrative doesn't have a question. Of course, they're looking for Sarah. They have something to tell her. Zion, the seventh question, Gimel hatamim shehebi Rashi, him tamim nifrodim she'enam kshurim zelazeh. The three reasons for why they were looking for Sarah or why they asked where is Sarah are all self-standing independent reasons. They don't seem to be interconnected to each other. And the, then the question that arises is, So why does Rashi bring all three reasons in one continuum? Without engaging stylistically in um, what he normally would do in such a case and say, and another thing, so he would give us one reason. And then he would say, or something like that. But here, he, he just gives us three reasons in one continuum without punctuating them and saying, here's another reason. Oh, and here's another reason. And the Rebbe says, and the question is really even bigger. Rashi is not only citing from a certain Gemara, but he brings the citation as part of his parish. Okay? And if you look at the source in Baba Metziah, if you look in Baba Metzia, the words are not in the order that Rashi cites them. Rashi has changed the, the syntax because in Baba Metzia it says, Rabbi Yosi Barchanina Omar, Shem Bal Hamamar Koidem Tevas Omar. In Bava Metzia, which Rashi is citing, the name of the Balhamaimer, the name of the person who to whom this teaching is attributed, prefaces the word Omar, he said. And why is this significant? Because when the name prefaces the verb, in this case, Rabbi Yosi Barchanina prefaces the word Omar, he said, Moira, this teaches us, this teaches us is differing in opinion on what his colleague said before. In this case, that they asked Avram, where is Sarah in order to further endear her to Avram? Rashi, Shina, but Rashi changed the order of the words. And this is significant because by writing Omar, by putting the verb, and he said before the name of the person, when you put the word Omar before the person who said the teaching, the implication is that this person agrees with what was said earlier. 
But in the Gemara, it's the opposite order. And the implication is that he differs with what was said earlier. So not only does Rashi bring us three seemingly different explanations or reasons for the same question, which is why were they looking for Sarah? Why did they say, where is Sarah, your wife? Not only does he bring us three different explanations in one fell swoop without punctuating and saying, oh, and here's another reason, and here's another reason, but he also changes the order from the, from the source that he tells us he is citing from. And this is not a benign change because it changes the understanding from one in which the Gemara seems to be implying that Rabbi Bachanina differs with what his colleague said earlier, but according to Rashi, he agrees. So before we go into Gimel, where the Rebbe is going to explain all of these questions, let's just quickly review the questions on the second part of Rashi. The first question is, the second part of Rashi does not seem to be an explanation on the word a love, on the fact that there are dots on the Aleph, the Yud, and the Vav. So first of all, why would there not be a separate Dibar Maschil? Especially, the Rebbe says, because there's an aspect in the second part of the Rashi that seems to contradict an earlier aspect. And that is that earlier, Rashi is teaching us that you should converse with the host or the hostess. But the second part of Rashi seems to be underscoring Sarasneus. And is this really Tzneus for them to be talking to her? Base. The second question is, why does Rashi cite Baba Vitsia? The teaching about that they knew where she was, but they just wanted to endear her to Avram by underscoring her modesty, that she's in the tent, which, which, which underscores her modesty. Why does he cite that is from Baba Metzia? The third question is, why does he cite that Rabbi Yossi Berchanina taught us this rule, uh, I'm sorry, this reason that they were looking to send her Kishel Bracha? The fourth question is, oh, if we're talking about Kishel Bracha, why would they be sending her Kishel Bracha from their cup? She has a husband. Why didn't he send her Kishel Bracha? Is this Sinistic? The fifth question is that the three questions, the three answers are given by Rashi. Why isn't one answer enough? Why does Rashi give us three answers? The sixth question is, why is there even a question? <laughs> why are we asking anything on this puzzle? Why is Rashi giving us any reasons for why they asked where Sarah is? We know why they asked where Sarah is. Rashi already told us. In, in the second Pasuk, on, in this very same chapter, we didn't forget that Rashi told us that they're looking to give her good news. They have obviously have to find her. You can't WhatsApp her. The seventh question is that these three reasons for why they said don't seem to be connected to one another. And yet Rashi brings them in one continuum. And the question is uh, even more pronounced because Rashi changes the order. And by Rashi changing the order, he is implying that they're all in agreement, but he's citing from the Gemara where it seems to be implied that there is a difference in opinion. 
And if there's a difference in opinion, it's all the more reason to say davar acher. There's another explanation. Or yesh omrim, there are those that said. And Rashi doesn't do that. He brings them all in one long continuum. Gimel. We're in chilek tezbav, parshish vayera, aleph. Sicha aleph, sif gimel. Habir b'cholana. The explanation for all of these questions. In commenting on the words, and they said to him, What is Rashi's real question? The real question that Rashi is addressing is this. We already learned that one of them was going to tell Sarah that she was going to become a mother. And so one of them, and Rashi already told us that one, only one, has to sell Sarah and in fact, one of them does say to her, I will return. I'm sorry, when this time comes again next year, you will be a mother. The im came. And so if Rashi has already broadcasted to us that only one of the three Malachim were in charge of this job to tell Sarah that she's going to be a mother. And then the Torah says, and he said, Shuva, Shuv, this time is going to come again. And when this time comes again next year, you'll be a mother. So the real question that Rashi is coming to address here is, why does the, why does the Torah say, he, and they said in plural, why are all three angels asking, where is Sarah, if only one of them has a message for her. And now it's clear as day why the word belongs in the deeper Hamaschil. Because in fact, Rashi is not focusing only or maybe in the main on the word they love. The question that propels the entire Rashi is, why is it in plural? Why are they all saying, where is Sarah? Okay, so first question has been answered. So in answering the question of why is in plural, why are all the Malachim looking to chat up Sarah? So Rashi tells us, we learn from this, that it's common decency, it's manners, that a person should ask their host about their spice, as their spouse, hainu, meaning. It must be that the Torah is coming to teach us something, because in order to give Sarah the news, it would have been enough that one of them is asking exactly where she located so I could go talk to her. Why did they all ask? Because even if you don't have something specific to say to the spouse, you should still inquire about their general health, how they're doing. 
ומאחר שביום הוא לשון רע ומכריח סלימו שאיש על אדם מחסני חולי, דהיינו הן לאיש על אישה. So once Rashi sets down this rule that the Torah is coming to teach us common courtesy that a person should always ask the spouse about their spouse, so if Rashi brings down this rule to teach us common courtesy, common decency, that you should ask a man about his wife, you should ask a woman about her husband. So in this case, the Torah tells us they said to him, where is Sarah? In other words, they spoke to the husband about the wife. And Rashi tells us that the dots come to teach that they also asked her about him. Why does the Torah tell us that they asked her about him? Madua ein muska bekaso. Why is that not written in the puzzle? Rashi, so Rashi explains, That's why Rashi feels compelled to comment here. With this, he is saying, this is my business. Yes, my mandate is only to talk about pshat. And the Rebbe says, Hagam, ain Rashi Although there are many places in the Torah where there is Nikud, there are dots on letters, and Rashi does not comment. Because in the cases where he does not comment, it's because he does not feel that it is seminal and necessary to understand the Pshat. But in this case, Rashi does feel it's necessary. Okay, Dalit, Avaladayan in a move on. Okay, got that, but it's still not understood. Sheyishal Adam Bachsanya, this uh, kind of uh, rule of etiquette that Rashi is teaching us here, that a person should always ask their host about their spouse. In Yanai Bipashto She'ela Shalom, it would seem at first blush that this is about asking how they are. Okay, if you want to ask about her in general, oh, and how is your wife, Sarah? Got it. But then what difference does it make where she is? They didn't ask, how is she doing? They asked, where is Sarah? The Sarah. Why did they ask, where is she? They didn't just ask how she is, they asked where she is. And therefore, Rashi feels compelled to continue under the same Dibar Hamaschil. You see, the Rebbe is answering the question, why does this continue under the same Dibar Hamaschil? Now the Rebbe tells us, Rashi is giving us reasons, inciting Baba Metzi and telling us why they asked where she is. Not just how she is, but where she is. They asked specifically where she is because they wanted to further endear her to her husband by underscoring her modesty that she is in the tent. And they wanted to center the Kishel Bracha. Rashi 
Yeshev She'ela Nosefes. And now the Rebbe is explaining why Rashi cited specifically Baba Metziah. And he says that by citing Baba Metziah, Rashi answers another question. Nikur al teva oiz, moira al kach sheteva oizu, shoina mitevas acheres. When there's a dot on a letter, this signals, this broadcasts, that this letter or this word is different from other words or is even different from other instances where the same word is used in the Torah. But here it's being used in a different way. But however you explain the dots on the letters, one thing you can't say is that the dots come to completely erase the word. It doesn't make sense to say that the dots come to obviate or completely erase the word, because if that would be the case, why put the word there to begin with? So we're forced to understand that what the dot does is soften or weaken or contextualize the word, but it doesn't erase it. And the Rebbe brings down an example. Famously, when Yaakov and Esav meet for the first time, after many, many, many years that Yaakov had put a lot of distance between him and his roommate, the Torah says that he kissed him. And there are dots on the word Vayishakehu. And Rashi tells us, that the dots come to teach us that he did not kiss him with his whole heart. And Rashi brings down another, another, another explanation on the dots. And in that second explanation, Rashi says, no, no, he did actually kiss him with all sincerity. But you might remember that um, Rashi teaches that Yaakov's um, neck turned into shayish, into marble, so that... Um, no, no, sorry. There's, there's two explanations. One is that he didn't kiss him. He actually bit him. But Hashem saved him through a miracle that his neck turned into marble and was impervious to Esav's overture. And the second is that he actually did kiss him with all his heart um, and that he overrode the, the, the normal rule that Esav said, The second explanation is that this wasn't the normal um, kiss, the normal way that Esav would relate to Yaakov. In consonance with the rule that Esav hates Yaakov, this was like a one-off aberration. So the point is that Rashi tells us there that the dots come to teach us something specific. But they don't come to erase the word that, that he kissed him. He did kiss him. The question is, well, what kind of kiss was this? Or even more than this, or sometimes dots come to, to supplant, or I mean, the, the word that's being used here literally means to uproot um, 
but it really means contextually to contextualize. Um, and in this case, um, like for instance, on the on the words that the Rebbe has already previously referenced, that he didn't know when she lay down and when she got up. So what Rashi explains there, that the dots on the words when she got up, Rashi says, yeah, when they went to sleep, he didn't know. But when she got up, he did know. But it doesn't come to completely erase the word when she got up. And we will see exactly what the Rebbe is explaining here. So after that Pasuk, where it says, and he was so drunk, he didn't know when she was laying down, when she got up, the next Pasuk tells us, the next day, and the girl said, said to each other, let's get him drunk again, this night too, let's do this again. The But it's not understood. Rashi already told us that when she got up, he did know. So then if last night they got him drunk, but he was still aware of what went on when he got up, he, he was cognizant of what went on. How is it going to help to get him drunk again? But the explanation is, the fact that he did know when she got up, this is just that light knew when his daughter got up. But they were not aware that he was aware. He knew what, what went on. I guess he sobered up by the time he got up. But they didn't know that he had registered what happened. So the next night they said, let's get him drunk again. So the Rebbe is showing us that by putting dots on the word of Kuma, what the dots signal is that you're dividing that word or you're moving that word. And so it's not relating to what you thought it might be relating to. It, like in this case, Viloyada, that he didn't know. And Rashi says, but when they got up, he did know. And that's why the dots come to soften or mitigate the strength of the word Uvakuma. But there's more here. It's not that it completely obviates his knowledge. It's who knew. He knew, but they did not know. So the Rebbe is showing us what dots could do. So once we understand what dots and letters could do, again, to review, they cannot erase the word completely, because if so, why would you have the word there to begin with? But they could neutralize it. They could soften the impact, they could mitigate the strength of the word, they could even change to which words that word relates, like it does in the case of the loyata. 
So now we take this knowledge, and from this we understand Benidun Didan in our discussion on this Pasuk. Once we see that there are nikudais, there are dots on the letters Aleph Yudvav, Hari Hadavar Meira, this teaches us, and this is going to answer why literally spill ink to put three dots when you could put one dot. Right? That was one of the big questions that I had on the first part of the Rashi. If you're going to end up explaining the majority, whether they have dots or they don't have dots, so why put dots on three letters? You could have just put a dot on one letter. You would still end up explaining the three letters that are not dotted. But the Rebbe says no, because dots come to change the impact. And in this case, putting dots on the three letters comes to tell us something about the nature of the question. Yes, they did ask her about him. Yes, they did engage in conversation. And remember that the Rebbe asked, how could they engage in conversation? Isn't this contradictory to underscoring here her absolute modesty? So this is coming to teach us that they did ask her, but they didn't ask with the same strength that they asked him about her. The question was modulated because she was a woman and they were men. They asked him in a certain way. They, they conversed with him in a certain way. That was, it was tempered when they spoke to her. And that's what the extra dots in the Aleph Yud and Vav come to and the Rebbe says in the, in, the, in the brackets, and this explains why there has to be the dots on the three letters, although if there would have only been a dot on one of the letters, we would have ended up having to look and extrapolate from the same three letters. But the reason it has the dots is to teach us that the question itself of where is Avraham, with which they address Sarah, a woman, was tempered, went down a notch in conformity with her sneeze. <laughs> comes to teach us that their question, where is Avraham to Sarah, was not, <clears throat> they didn't converse with her in the same way as they did with him. And exactly in which way was their question tempered? This is understood from what Rashi says in Baba Metziah, we learn that this is to teach us that she was modest. And now the Rebbe is answering why this all comes in one continuum. Because it all, each part of this informs the other. So once we understand why 
there has to be a dot, an aleph, yud, vav, to show us that the question itself was done in a certain way. This feeds right into what it says in Baba Metzia, that she was a modest woman. The fizem move on. Shemasha hevi rasha Baba Metzia lo hediya shastumu haisa. Ain I steer a perish af lasara shalu aye Avraham. Ella adder of it. Dafka al yudizer mivu erasibas hanikral oisius alaf yudvav. Not only does each part of this feed into the other, and therefore it's understood why Rashi doesn't punctuate it and say, oh, and another thing and another thing, but it also resolves, and that was another question, isn't it contradictory at the beginning to say they spoke to her and asked her, how's Avraham or where's Avraham? And then later say she was a tznuah. But now we see that it informs it. It doesn't contradict it. It explains it. She was a tznuah, and therefore the ayo, where is Avraham, their question to her was in a very specific way. Zayin. Hatam shebepirusha yoidim hayu chule lohidiya shetznuah heisa hiktim rashi v'bava metziya emrim. Now, the Chab is asking, and so why does Rashi have to cite Baba metziya? And not only does he cite, but he also says, Oimrim, they say. The reason for this is, because the first part of Rashi, what Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said about the dots, that teaching, that rule about which letters you should be looking to for subtext to give you an additional strata of information, that rule is also cited in a medrash. By Rashi telling us, by Rashi including that citation, which again is a digression from his normal style, Rashi Rashi is coming to inform, to broadcast, He's coming to tell us, no, I want you to pay attention to the fact that this is from Baba Metzia. This, this rule is cited in Baba Metzia because it is connected to, and it not only is not opposing or contradictory to the next thing it says in Baba Metzia about her tzniyas, but it actually is of one cloth. It informs it. It works together. It's two pieces of a puzzle. And that's why Rashi doesn't just bring the citation that this teaching is also found in Bambatsiya, but he also adds the words, they say, what does it mean? Hainu, meaning, that this thing that Rashi cites in Bambatsiya, to teach us that Sarah was modest, who beget their oimrim stam, Everybody agrees that with this, they wanted to underscore Sarah's modesty. They all agree there. Even Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, who is the person who cited that they asked Sarah, where is Avram? He too agrees that Sarah's modesty was singular, was noteworthy, was underscored, and that there's no contradiction.
On the contrary, each part of this informs the other. And even Rabbi Yosef Berchanina, who says that they wanted to center the cup of blessing, sending her from their cup was not contradictory to her modesty. And the Rebbe will explain soon how that is and remember the question of why it is it that they're sending her their cup? Why doesn't her husband just send his cup? Ches. But before we get to see if Yud and Yud Aleph, we have some other business to take care of. But now the Rebbe is going to answer another one of his questions, which is why does Rashi have to give us three explanations? The Rebbe teaches a rule that whenever there's more than one explanation, it's because each one on its own is not enough. Each one on its own has a deficit. The reason that they should say, where is Sarah, in order to tell Avram how tzniyistic she is, to, to, to underscore her tzniyist, to further endear her to him, simply not enough. Why? Avram knew his wife, he knew her. And since they are malachim, they surely know that Avram knows this already. And so are we to understand that they were simply trying to further stoke Avram's love for his wife, which he already had? And therefore Rashi adds something else. That they had a different reason as well. And that is because they wanted to send her a cup of blessing. But if let's say Rashi would not have cited the first reason and he would have just said that they asked where she was because they want to send her wine. That would also not have been, that explanation also has a deficit. Why? Because they actually did know where she was. Then if they knew where she was, then why were they asking, where is she? Rashi tells us they were malachim. Being malachim, they have knowledge of her whereabouts. So therefore, just to cite the second thing that they want to send her a cup, and that's why they need a cup of blessing, that's why they need to know where she is, that's not enough. Therefore, Rashi has to cite the other reason that they wanted to arouse his love for her. They wanted to deepen her endearment by underscoring her modesty. And in asking Avram and elongating the conversation, it forced him to once again think about what a wonderful wife he has. The Rebbe says, and there's another advantage to Rashi citing the second explanation that they want to send her a cup. 
relevant to the first explanation that they want to deepen his love for her. If they want to underscore her modesty because they want to deepen Avram's love and appreciation for his wife, then what's relevant is the fact that she's not out and about. But it's not relevant exactly where it is that she is innermore. So in other words, if you want to underscore that she's not acting inappropriately, then you don't need to know exactly where she is. What you need to underscore is that she's not in the public arena. But you don't need to underscore she says in that that known tent, like the hey Hayadia, here this the bays that's that's underscoring the comments base is underscoring but I hell we all know where she was her tent where she belongs Masha in came the fee had time Kedela Shaker Hule Negea Hamukam Hamaduik Shabohinim says Kedela Gas Laan Lashagela but if you want to center something, you want to bring something, then you need to know her exact location. If you want to just underscore its knees, the only thing you have to know is that she's not in the public thoroughfare. But if you actually want to deliver a package to her, you need to know where she's located. Yud. Now we have to answer the question. Why were they sending her cup of blessing. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't seem okay. Avram should send his wife his cup. Move on fascist. Rebbe says, but this is this is understood simply. You just <laughs> you just have to think like the Rebbe does. <laughs> um, but then once he tells us like duh, right? So there's a simple reason why he didn't send from her, from his own cup, although it would seem that's what a husband should do. Because, because Avram was so completely invested and entrenched in the Achnasus Archim in taking care of the Malachim, his guests, he was completely preoccupied with serving them. And now, if you look carefully at how it describes what he was doing, the Torah says, I made Alehem. He was standing upon them. He was attentive to their needs. He was standing at the ready to serve them. And it's only vis-a-vis the malachim that the Torah says they ate. He didn't eat with them. So he had no cup of blessing to send Sarah because he wasn't eating and drinking. He was standing at the ready to their next whim, their next desire, their next request. And now that we understand, we see that this was not um, an action uh, that bespoke the opposite. There was no other way that she could get Kaisal Bracha unless they sent it, because they were the only ones who were eating and drinking. They had cups of wine. <laughs> and 
And especially because it wasn't they who delivered it, they sent it to her. But the Rebbe says, however, but the Ben Chamesh Lamikra can still push back in parentheses if he is astute, if he is sharp, if he is salty. The Ben Chamesh Lamikra could still claim. Okay, let's say they didn't deliver it. They were asking Aram where she is so that they could send it to her. Then, first of all, again, it's going to beg the question, then why do they need to know exactly where she is if they are not delivering it? We're putting that aside, the Ben Chamesh Shabikar could still say, that's still not okay. Why are they sending her an alcoholic beverage? Now the Rebbe is going to answer the question, of why does Rashi cite the name of Rabbi Yossi Bar Hanina? He was one that taught that they want to send her wine. What do we gain by citing him? We answer the question of, is there an impropriety in these malachim who are posing as men sending Sarah wine? And is there an impropriety in her accepting the wine from them? In other words, okay, fine. So Avram didn't have wine to send her. Okay, so she'll, she'll be fine. Can she, and especially if we're underscoring her tzniyas. So in Brachas, we learn, it's written, this same Baal HaMaimer that Rashi cited here as the one who said that they asked where she was because they wanted to send her wine, that very same Bala Maimer, that the very same Tana taught, that a woman recognizes her guests, she can evaluate, she can sum up the characteristics of her guests better than can a man. So the same Tana attributes this extra level of intuition or um, EQ ability to kind of uh, know people, read people. And the same Rabbi Barchanina that is cited here is the one who tells us that a woman has a, a, a more acute sense of really knowing who's who. So once Rashi cites his name, <laughs> uh, the Rebbe is teaching us that that means we should go look up what else did the same Tana teach us in other places? Ah, he's the one that taught us that a woman recognizes and knows the truth about her guests. And so once we know that, we understand that she, Sarah, was able to understand that these were not pedestrian, you know, um, Travelers, wayfarers, the Kabbalah's Kaishal Bracham and Nashim Ke'elu, Shehem Al Kapan in Bedaimelamalachim, Eina Inyan Shalhepachatsnius. Because she knew their quality, that they are at least like angels, so there is no impropriety in her accepting wine from them. She knows that these people are not trying to flirt with her. Yud Beis. La'achri Kalhanao. After everything that we've explained so far, 
we're still lacking explanation. It's true that these three reasons for them saying, where is Sarah, your wife, are not contradictory to each other. We've Because the Rebbe has explained how they're not contradictory. In fact, they how they inform each other. And therefore, we can explain that they had all these three intentions by saying, where is Sarah, your wife? But the Rebbe is still bothered. But there's still three different explanations. So we're still pushing back. Okay, fine. We're now convinced that they don't contradict each other. But still, why does Rashi cite them in one fell swoop? And why does he digress from his normal style where he brings more than one explanation? Even when they're not contradictory, he would normally say something like another thing. Or there are those that say. The explanation is the reason why Rashi brings three reasons in one continuum This is coming back to the fact that Rashi put the word in the Dibar Maschil because here's a Chiddush that Rashi is teaching here that the question was asked by three malachim, and malach, malach And each malach had a different reason for asking the same question, where is Sarah, your wife? And this is in conformity with what, what, with what Rashi taught us earlier at the beginning of this parsha. That every malach has his own Mission, his own And each of these three reasons that Rashi brings down is relevant to one of the Malach. They each had their reason for asking, and they each asked for one of the three reasons. In order to send to the Kishel Bracha, you only need one of them. If you only need one. To ask, how are you doing? To teach us common etiquette and courtesy. It's enough for one of the cohort, one of the three malachim, to ask in the name of all of them, how is your wife? And it's also enough for one malach to ask where is she in order to deepen Avram's love and appreciation for his wife. Yud Gimel. Habir b'haskara shem oimer haklal k'mokam shahaksav rabba l'nekudav chulu b'shimem ben Elazar. One more item of business before we go to the yena shaltar, before we go to the hira, to the reason, to to the lesson for ourselves. And the Rebbe still has not explained. So he explained why Rashi cites Baba Metzia. He explained why Rashi cites Rabbi Yisi. Now, the Rebbe is going to explain why does Rashi cite Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar? Because this rule that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar taught that when there are more letters that are dotted, then you need to 
um, pay attention and you need to be derish, you need to extrapolate more meaning from those letters. This rule does not come to obviate the pshat, especially when it's cited by Rashi, whose stated mandate is to explain the pshat of Mikra. Ella, but rather, that in addition to the pshat, so it's not to take away the pshat, it's to add an additional layer. It's to say, in this word, a love, there is embedded another word, and that word is ayoy, where is, in this case, where is Avram, that they ask Sarah. So we find. So when you understand what nikud, what dots come to do, you understand that there are two things going on simultaneously. Aleph, the letters Aleph Yudvav remain part of the word a love. So when you understand that Aleph Yudvav is part of the word a love, something very interesting happens. And that is that the majority of letters in this word actually yield in terms of importance to one lone letter, and that is the Lamit. Because a love means to him, and you could really say the same thing in Hebrew with the letter Lamed. Le'avraham. In other words, the most important letter in the word Elav is the Lamed. Even though the majority of letters are not the Lamed. And Bayes, and then on top of that, there's a separate thing. And that is that there's another word here, Ayoy, which means where is he? And the Rebbe says that once you realize this, once you recognize, once you analyze this word, that the other three letters in the word a love are actually secondary to that one lone letter, the Lamed, the Ben Chamesh Lomikra, if he is astute, if he is sharp, if he is salty, will say, wait, this doesn't make sense, that you have a word comprised of four letters, and the majority, three out of the four letters, are actually secondary to one little letter, the Lamed. Rashi, and this question of how is it possible for the majority to yield in importance to the single letter is answered by something else this Baal HaMaimer taught us. And that's why Rashi brings down the name Rav Shimon Ben Elazar. I mean, it's just, mind-boggling to realize the gift we have, to be able to, the Rebbe should 
teach us how to, how to read a Rashi properly. I mean, who, who would ever infer all of this? And go look up what else would Shimon ben Elazar say? And besides going to look it up, to even be mechadesh to us, that when Rashi cites a name of a Balamaimer, it's because you have to see what else did this Balamaimer do in his life, or what else did he say in order to understand this Rashi. So what does Rav Shimon ben Elazar say elsewhere? So in Beitzah, Rav Shimon ben Elazar, Eimer, Mimala isha kola tanor pas, mipnesha pas, neefa yafe bismach hatanor mali. Shimbin Alazar explains in Beitza that when a woman wants to bake bread properly, I'm not a baker or a cooker, so I, I, I don't know. I, I guess this is the way it is. If you really know what you're doing, in order for the bread, for each bread to bake in best fashion, it's best if the whole oven is full of bread. Even though for her yamtiv needs, a woman might only need one loaf of bread. And we know that on yamtiv, you're only allowed to cook what you need for yamtiv. But in this case, she's permitted. She can bake an oven full of bread, even though she doesn't need all that bread for yamtiv. In this way, she fills up the empty space of the oven. And when you fill up the empty space of the oven, everything bakes more uniformly or bakes better. She's allowed to do this in order that the bread that she needs for yamtip should bake better. So what, what is the subtext? What's the deeper lesson from this. All the other bread, let's say she put 14 loaves of bread in the oven, she really only needs one. All 13 loaves are actually yielding in their importance to that one loaf she actually needs for yamtiv. Because she wants that bread to come out perfectly and evenly baked. Therefore, the oven needs to be full. Therefore, lahalacha, she's permitted to fill the whole oven with bread for the one loaf she needs. And in like fashion, in what we're learning here, basically to say it a different way, it's not always about quantity. You have to look at the quality. And yes, it's true that sometimes the majority of what's in the oven is all secondary to that one loaf. In our case, those three letters are all secondary to the one letter Lamed. And yeah, that could be the case. What does the Rebbe teach us, the Hira, to our lives about this? And I think that um, it might even be so much more important for us as women to hear this. So what's the Yenish What is the wine? What is the most delicious and the most valuable part that we could squeeze out for ourselves? When a person starts to think in a moment of reflection and they think, that relatively speaking, the amount of time that they allot per day to Terah Mitzvahs is relatively 
a small amount of time. Most of the time, it's eating, sleeping, drinking, working. There's so many things that we do with our time. And they're different. They're not bad things. They're benign. They're permitted to be done. But still, it seems like the critical mass of our time and the aggregate, the preponderance of our time is dedicated to things that are not holy. This could cause us to get depressed. When a person starts to think like this, they could get depressed from how much time in their day is empty of holiness. And they're not doing anything bad. <laughs> Life. But you got to do the laundry, you got to do the dishes, you have to cook, you have to go shopping, you have to do this and this and this, yada, yada, yada. Or let's say you think about hosting people, right? How much time goes into the shopping and the cooking and the baking and the thinking and the tablescape or whatever, whatever, comparable to those precious moments where you actually can talk to your guest and, and exchange words of Torah or make what seems to be a meaningful connection. It could get depressing, especially in Tishrei, <laughs> right? It, 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 it's so overwhelming, the, um, the inequality. It's, it's so lopsided how much time it would seem goes into the physical preparations vis-a-vis the, the moments of spirituality. So the Rebbe says, and that's the lesson. If the reason you're doing all this stuff is l'shem shamayim, if it's all for the purpose of what, of, of, of effectuating what Hashem wants from us, then they're not dvarim rishos, then they're not benign. They become part of they yield to the Terimitsus. Just like the Tana taught us that on Yom Tov, yes, you're allowed to fill the whole oven with bread, even though you don't need all those breads, just for that one bread that you need to bake more evenly and to bake better. Even though we have a rule of thumb that you can only do what you need to do on Yom Tov, but you're allowed to do this all for that one bread. So all the other breads that you don't really need, they all become for the purpose of Yom Tov. Because you want that one bread to come out right. So all that space in the oven, it's all yamtif. It's not chol. You know, the word halal that Rebbe is using here, empty space. Like, what does it mean to be mechalal Shabbos? It means to create an open space in what should otherwise be filled with holiness. Like you're, you're puncturing the bubble of Shabbos or yamtif. The Rebbe says, no, there's no halal here. There's no empty space. It's all filled with the same holiness. It's all part of Yom Tev. It's not pedestrian. It's not every day. 
So a Jew has to know that when you engage in all of these different things that life necessitates, but it's all l'shem shamayim, it's it's the shame in Yanim of Terem Mitzvahs. And especially when you want your bread of Terah to bake properly. Like the Rebbe explained on the Pasuk. So this would seem to be a curse that 10 women will have to bake bread in one oven. But Al Rab explained, explained, no, this is a bracha. The warmth that comes when you break, when I'm sorry, when you bake the bread of Taira in the warmth of one oven, echad. When you contemplate the Achdos of Hashem, when you contemplate this one Abishtar over the seven heavens and the one earth in all four corners of the world, when you have this bindingness of Echad and you have the warmth and the all suffusive presence of Hashem, that's that that's a that's a spectacular bracha. So the Rebbe says, when you want to bake your bread of Torah properly in this warmth, Hare Az Nase Beloshan Harambam. When you when you when you when you operate in that headspace and in that way, and the Rabbi explains, as Hashem tamid, Then, even when you're doing business, the Rambam explains, because of where your head is, because of your attitude, because of what fills you, Even when you're sleeping, that sleeping is part of your Avaidas Hashem. In other words, it's your attitude. It's not about how much time. It's what is most important to you. So yes, we can look at all of this and say, oh my God, we are just overwhelmed with the minutia and the physical, material, corporeal aspects of hosting guests or uh, putting on a program or diapering babies or dealing with dishes, whatever it is. Like most of it seems to be gashmas, but the Rebbe says, no, it all becomes ruchmias. It all becomes part of that bread that you're baking and it's all pervasive. There's no empty spaces. So when you're operating in this headspace, then you're serving Hashem in all of your actions, in all of your ways. Even in what seems to be the lowest, the most physical expression thereof, most um, bereft of obvious spiritual dimension. And of course, the tachtoinim shehi tachlis brias ha'elamais. And we know Hasidus tells us over and over that the tachlis is to bring Hashem into what seems to be the lowest and the most disconnected. To make for Hashem a dwelling place in the lowest places, like the Rebbe Rashab explained in the famous Hemshechim Samachvav, when the Rebbe said this, he reminded us that that Shabbos, Shabbos Parshas, was the day of the 
Kabrachab's birthday, Varezu Gam Hachana Krebelizman Shaboy Loy Nizdakik Oidla Filabnesha Sida Ezisol Shatitsi Gluskoisuklimilas. Um and this is a preparation for the time that will come very soon when we will not need to bake anymore because the Gemara tells us that all kinds of delights will come right out of the earth. We won't need to go shopping. We won't need pots and pans. We won't need to spend any time in the kitchen. It'll all be available. With the coming of Mashiach, our righteous Mashiach, it should be very soon. Amen. I know this was a little bit longer, but that is the nature of a Rashi Sicha. Uh, there are questions, uh, there are answers, um, and I hope that everybody enjoyed. Um, it's the kind of thing that kind of needs to be reviewed. There are a lot of details, um, but again, every time I'm just overcome again by just how fortunate we are to be able to learn in this singular way on this level and, and, and what a gift we have. Um, so wishing everybody uh, lots of luck in all the different things in our oven. Uh, and it should all take, um, just inform that one loaf that is really all we want to do right here. And we should be able to see how it's all part of it so we can appreciate it. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Kultov. Thank you very Thank you. much. Amazing, beautiful. Wow.